Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 265, What Apologists Don't Understand About Being and Person. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to play you part of a recent episode of the program called The Dividing Line by Calvinist apologist Dr. James White, partly because it's entertaining in its nastiness, but more because it's illustrative of some systematic problems with the way apologetics is done today, and it shows some key ways in which apologists do not understand the work of analytic theologians like me. And then in the latter portion of the podcast, I'll play a portion of my recent debate with Chris Date. And there's a part in the debate in his rebuttal where it's clear that despite his good efforts, he's misunderstanding where I'm coming from when it comes to the terms being and person. So let's start with James White. As best I can tell, what James White seems to understand about me and my work is that some people find it rather exciting and important. Some people would say that I'm an important critic of Trinity theories and that at minimum I'm presenting interesting problems that Trinitarians have to solve. On the other hand, some people would go farther and say that I offer some tough objections to Trinity theories, both biblical and just sort of philosophical and logical, or historical. For whatever reason, it seems that James White can't stand philosophers generally. I've never seen him have anything nice to say about philosophers. I've seen him say grumpy and dismissive things about the work of Dr. William Lane Craig and a couple of times about my work. I'm not sure why that is. I suspect he just doesn't know much about philosophy and it just seems like a waste of human energy to him. Why can't we just be smart and just deduce the correct conclusions from scripture like he does? There may be something else going on too. In my debate with Michael Brown, He made a comment at a certain point that, on reflection, I thought was kind of revealing. In my rebuttal to his opening statement, I showed why, given things that Brown says, it looks like the Father and the Son will be the same entity and also the same self. And I pointed out how this doesn't make sense with the New Testament because Jesus is supposed to be a mediator between God and humans and Jesus and God have an interpersonal relationship, and so on. So I was arguing against his view by showing that it implies undesirable things, things that a Christian should want to deny, not accept. Brown made a comment to the effect that, oh, this this crazy tuggy guy, he just wasted his whole rebuttal saying how wrong I am, and he should have been giving me scripture instead. I realized because of that comment and because of his whole demeanor in the rest of the debate that he really just was supremely offended by the idea that he should have to submit to reason. How dare any punk come along and say that his views entail a contradiction or that they imply the falsity of things which the New Testament requires? I mean, he was kind of there to school me. Guys like Brown and White, they're the top dog in their organization. In their view, they enjoy superpowers of exegetical prowess. And so you don't come along and say, hey, but what you've said commits you to these other things. Now, what do you say about those other things? Okay, but that's just refusal to submit to reason. 
If someone comes along to me and says, hey, Tuggy, you say A, B, and C, and A, B, and C imply D, but D, I mean, how can you accept D? That's ridiculous. You have to deny one of those, don't you? You have to deny A, B, or C if you want to get out of accepting D. I would submit to reason. I would say, yes, I do accept D, but it's not bad, and let me explain why. You're just mistaken in thinking that D is unacceptable. Or... I would say, you know what, actually, the argument's not valid. A, B, and C don't imply D. Let me show you why that argument isn't properly constructed. So it turns out I can accept A, B, and C and still consistently with that deny D. Or, if it is a valid argument, then I say, thank you uh, for pointing out that A, B, and C imply D. But you know what, I, I believe that B is false based on scripture or possibly based on something else. Right, so when I do that, I'm admitting that I'm subject to reason. My theology could be refuted by someone showing that it's incoherent. My views about the New Testament could be refuted by someone showing that overall this is not the best way to understand a certain passage. That's usually not so straightforward as just giving a single deductive argument. It's usually much more complicated than that. But anyway, this is not White's response when someone tries to give a critique of his position. After my Brown debate, I put out a post called Brown versus White on the Trinity. And uh, this was based on an earlier post I'd made responding to one of Dr. White's debates. And I show that Dr. White's views imply that the Father and Son are just one and the same. They are numerically identical. And yet you can't say that if you're a Christian and indeed if you're a Trinitarian. And so, you know, what gives? Which premise do you want to deny? He doesn't care. He doesn't care to respond to that sort of thing. He doesn't have to submit to reason. He shouldn't have to. He's too much an expert for that sort of thing. My own view is that nobody reaches a level where they don't have to submit to reason, where they don't have to be willing to consider carefully constructed objections like this. After all, James 3.17 says that the wisdom from above is reasonable or willing to yield. When someone critiques you like this, your response should be, thank you very much. And again, you can show the argument is valid, but has a false premise. You can show that it's invalid, so the conclusion doesn't follow. Or you can just embrace the argument as sound and say, yeah, the conclusion does follow, but there's nothing wrong with that. Those are pretty much the responses that you have when it's a simple deductive argument like this that's being offered as an objection. I invite Dr. White to respond to that argument that I call the argument for collapsing the father and son. I know how I get away from that argument, but I don't think he has a principled way to get out of it without making a significant shift in his position. What seems to be Dr. White's brand of Trinity theory is something I discussed way back in 2003 in what was basically my first published article on Trinity theories. It's my piece called The Unfinished Business of Trinitarian Theorizing, published in Religious Studies in 2003. And in a section called Latin Trinitarianism, I discuss what I call popular LT, popular Latin Trinitarianism. And it's this view that each of the Father and Son just is God, that each one of them is numerically identical to God. That seems to be what Dr. White thinks and... The problem with that is then the one just has to be the other. Things which are numerically identical to the same thing have to therefore be numerically identical to one another. And yet a Christian can't say that.
so yeah, the problems with his type of Trinity theory have been out there for quite a while. The only other time he's sort of taken a swipe at my work is when he reacted a bit on his show to my podcast called Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. In this podcast, I say, look, New Testament teaching is that Jesus died. And if you believe in this two natures theory, well, how could a divine and therefore essentially immortal being die? And then I go through the many agonies of two natures theories. What does it mean? Are these two natures just properties? Are these two natures individuals like selves? Or what are they? Should we just say it's a mystery? I mean, to paraphrase on this earlier show, this was a year or two ago. He basically said that uh, he was exercising, riding his bike or an exercise bike or something. He tried to listen to this and he just, you know, he got partway through and he just quit. What is this garbage? This isn't exegesis. This is just theorizing. Fooey, I don't need this. Let me translate that for you. I can't understand this. Therefore, it must not be saying anything important. So he just very quickly loses patience with philosophical approaches to Christian doctrines. When you really think about it, it doesn't make any sense because Trinity and Incarnation doctrines are not just straightforward teachings of the Bible. They are products of human speculation. And as such, they should be judged like products of human speculation. They should be judged by the canons of logic and metaphysics, epistemology. But no, you don't need to go through all that rigmarole in his view. Um, he's really devoted to what you could call the small c Catholic narrative about the history of Christian doctrine. And in Protestant form, it goes something like this, that God is three persons and that Christ is God and man or the God man or that Christ has two natures. These are just obvious implications of the Bible. If any open-minded person will just sit down and carefully study the Bible using good exegetical tools, clearly they will come to these conclusions. And so, therefore, anyone who doesn't come to those conclusions either is lazy, they haven't done the work, or they're warped and dishonest somehow. They just are blinded to the obvious truth. Or maybe they just don't have the tools to even work with, and so they're just ham-handed on interpretation. Right, but anybody who's a competent interpreter can very easily just deduce Trinity and Incarnation from the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And these doctrines did not come into existence in the 300s and 400s. These are just what Christians have thought all along. The only thing that developed over the first four or five centuries was just the language in which Christians expressed these understandings that God is triune and that Christ is both divine and human. Now, after a couple of decades of studying this, I'm firmly convinced for historical reasons that this narrative is false. In fact, the type of two natures doctrine, which is considered essential to orthodoxy nowadays, really wasn't seen in about the first two centuries of Christianity. And arguably, you don't really see it until Chalcedon in 451. There were precursor doctrines of two natures, but there were several players in the field there. There wasn't one required orthodox view. There were dueling views. If you want to learn more about these dueling early views, check out my lecture called Clarifying Catholic Christologies. This actually isn't an episode of the Trinity's podcast, but you can find it at 21st Century Reformation online or by searching on YouTube. These are facts that, frankly, Dr. White is blind to because of his devotion to this narrative. 
There just can't have been competing mainstream views in early Christianity if, in fact, Christians have just always thought these things and they've always been considered essential, and the only development has just been in terms of precision and terminology. He just can't acknowledge the actual history that's there, the actual development that you can see. Okay, so when it comes to analytic theologians like me and apologists, let me give you a couple of good rules of thumb. If you see an apologist dealing with a philosopher, when they stop actually engaging with the person's views, but they start shrieking at the person's line, that they're constantly begging the question, just assuming the very thing that needs to be proved, or that they're just stupid, they're hacks, they're cranks, they don't know what they're doing, they're always confused, they have no idea what's going on. When you hear them say that, most likely they don't understand the person in question. They're just resorting to rhetorical poop throwing. I mean, come on, am I a total idiot? I have a PhD from an Ivy League university. I have a bunch of peer-reviewed publications on the Trinity in journals like Faith and Philosophy, Philosophy of Christie, Religious Studies, the International Journal for Philosophy of Religion, the European Journal for Philosophy of Religion. I wrote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on the Trinity. Probably not a total idiot. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, I'm probably not going to be totally incompetent in arguing. How likely is that, really? Now, I know this is hard when somebody's coming from a highly developed position and it's different than yours. If you're a Protestant trying to dialogue with a Catholic, for instance, or vice versa, the differences are so great, sometimes it might just be infuriating to work with. But You know, that's what you have to do to get to the bottom of it. You have to get down to what the basic differences are, what the most fundamental differences are. You have to understand the arguments to a point where you can either show that the conclusion doesn't follow, so you've got an invalid argument, or where you can say, no, that's a valid argument, but hey, there's a false premise here. And let me explain why you should disagree with that premise. It takes a lot of work to get to that point. You might have to spend weeks reading articles and books Yeah, White's not patient enough to do that. I think that some people who are into apologetics, including Dr. White and Mr. Date, they tend to think that you can compartmentalize and separate exegetical decisions from considerations of consistency, logical consistency, coherence. You can't do that, though, because you don't want to foist what look like contradictory positions on biblical texts. Questions about what's consistent with what, and is this view overall consistent with itself, and is it consistent with other things we know, or with other things which a Christian must commit to, those questions can't be put off to one side while you're just wrangling about Greek words and translation problems and just exegesis in general. They're completely relevant. They're highly relevant. Good exegesis needs to be, among other things, charitable. It needs to try to avoid, as best it can, foisting self-contradictory views onto the authors they're interpreting. To just say, oh, that's just something for philosophers or something for the theology or analytic theology nerds to worry about, uh, that doesn't make any sense because we all equally well know that contradictory claims can't both be true. And if an overall position is incoherent, there has to be something false in it. And so adjustments need to be made 
interpretations need to be revisited when they imply contradictions. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. White weighs in on my recent debate with Chris Date. So at the end of a recent dividing line, this I believe was streamed on uh, June 14th, Dr. White just throws in this little discussion in the last uh, 10 minutes or so of the show about my recent debate with Chris Date. Here's what he says. I started listening to, I did not listen to all of it, but I started listening to another Dale Tuggy debate that recently took place. And wow, that is so hard to listen to Dr. Tuggy. Um, his arguments are just, just so bad. I, I mean, they, it, it stuns me that there are so many people who just think he's the cat's meow when it comes to arguing against the Trinity because 95% of the time he's burning straw men and he knows he's doing it and pretty much openly admits he's doing it. Wow, that's a really um, strong accusation. And You know, normally you don't have scholars accusing each other of things like this. It's very rare. It does happen. A straw man fallacy is where you don't attack your opponent's position, but you attack like a stupid caricature, a straw man, a a scarecrow version of it, right? right? So you're fighting a man, not a scarecrow is the image. So for instance, in today's political discourse, a Democrat might be discussing a Republican and the Republican is opposing some piece of legislation that has to do with, I don't know, transgender bathroom access. The Democrat might fly off the handle and say something like, Senator Smith, he just wants to kill all LGBTQ people. Well, well, that's kind of stupid. I mean, probably a U.S. senator isn't going to be saying something like that. So, you know, it's a straw man fallacy. The Democrat there just hasn't given you the slightest bit of reason to disagree with the Republicans' opposition to this legislation. He hasn't really engaged with what the Republican actually thinks. He's just attacked a kind of ridiculous caricature of the guy's position. Okay, so James White here decides to hurl this accusation that I never actually do attack the doctrine of the Trinity, but I only attack sort of confused, stupid versions of it that I've come up with. And what's more, I know exactly what I'm doing. I don't care to be honest. I don't care to address what people actually think. And so I just love to go around slugging this mannequin, this scarecrow, and then declaring myself a boxing champion. Oh, and and one more thing to make it worse. I basically admit this is what I'm doing. So Haha, I'm not going to actually interact with the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm going to beat up this thing I made up. And the whole time I'm going to be winking at you that I'm doing it. Haha. Man, that that tuggy guy is a horrible person. What a fiend. What a a fool. What a jerk. What a lame-o. Those are pretty serious accusations there. So 
hopefully he's got some good evidence or argument to back this up. He's not just flinging feces, right? Let's see if he does pony up some evidence for these serious accusations. Uh, very, very frustrating. But let me just give you uh, an example. This is just a quick little statement here uh, to give you an idea of, uh, of what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about. This is from his, uh, his opening statement. Just a single simultaneous difference, no matter how small, proves that we are dealing with two beings and not with one. So, if there is any difference, and he said simultaneous difference, um, between the Father and the Son, then we're dealing with two beings, not one. Now, he knows, he well knows, though he didn't even attempt to refute it, how important in historical Christian theology, the distinction between being and person is. He doesn't bother to care to remain consistent on that. And so he knows that the orthodox formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity differentiates between being and person and says that in the issue of being, there is only one being of God, simple, it cannot be divided, it is not complex, and therefore there is no difference in the being that is shared by the Son in his deity and the Father in his deity or the Spirit in his deity. It's just one being. can't be divided up into thirds or anything else. But that the doctrine of the Trinity specifically, as a part of its teaching, says that the Father, Son, and Spirit will differ from one another, or we could not recognize them. That they have taken different roles. That the Son becomes incarnate. There's so many of his arguments. Now, to go on a rant here about being in person, and I don't acknowledge that, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity distinguishes between being in person, it's a little bizarre for a couple of reasons. One reason is this was not a Trinity debate. This was basically a debate about incarnation, about the doctrine of two natures. The topic was Jesus is human and not divine. So I was denying any doctrine of two natures as non-scriptural and against the scriptures ultimately. And Mr. Date was defending a traditional small-c Catholic view on which Christ has a divine nature and a human nature. So, yeah, we weren't really talking about the Trinity here. And there's a communication problem here regarding the term being. Dr. White has not engaged my work enough or just generally the work of analytic theology to understand what's going on here. He doesn't realize in the part that he quoted that I'm just applying a self-evident principle, a general principle on the same level as 2 plus 2 is 4, or if A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A has to be also bigger than C, right? the transitivity of bigger than. And that's the principle called the indiscernibility of identicals, or the difference of discernibles. This says that if any X and Y are numerically identical then whatever's true of one has to be true of the other. Or, to put it differently, they can't differ in any way. They, in principle, can't differ if it's just the same thing. Now, of course, things can change over time, so you have to allow for that in the definition, I think. Right? I can be 205 pounds a month from now, even though I'm 200 pounds now, if I really put my mind to eating more donuts. So you wouldn't want to say the guy who exists in a month that looks like me isn't the same person as me. He is the same person, just fatter. Right, so if you're dealing with things at a single time or in timeless eternity, if you discover a difference between them, then 
they really must be two things, two entities, two individual realities of some kind or other. And the reason just is that a thing is the way it is. It can't be and not be the same way at the same time. So we all really know this and we apply it in everyday reasoning. So take the name John Smith. That's a common name. You have a friend named Smith and they say their dad is John Smith. And then you just meet some John Smith, say in the course of your work. And you're wondering, hey, is your friend's dad the same as this person at work? Well, if you discover a single difference between the work John Smith and the dad John Smith, you know that there's two different John Smiths. It's just two different people you're dealing with. They just happen to have the same name. On the other hand, if you tried to go about finding a difference between the two John Smiths and you just kept going and they look the same, they're the same height, they're, they were born in the same place, and you keep going and you don't find uh, any difference, eventually you're going to conclude, oh, okay, I shouldn't have two John Smiths in my inventory of beings in the world. I should collapse what I was thinking were two characters into one and the same character. There's really just one guy there. The dad John Smith just is the work John Smith. Okay, but when you find a single simultaneous difference, you know that they're two beings, they're two men. Now, the reason Dr. White is so frustrated is because, as I mentioned, he can't stand philosophers. I don't know why. I mean, philosophers are peculiar people, but it makes no more sense to dislike them than it makes sense to dislike biologists or dentists. But he has this general irritation going in, and then he doesn't understand what's going on. So when I'm applying the principle of the indiscernibility of identicals or the difference of discernibles, I'm using the term being just in the most general sense, just thing that can be referred to, or if you like, some kind of reality. He latches onto that and says, aha, you're begging the question. No, I'm not begging any questions at all. I'm just applying a self-evident principle. It's a principle that any decent theory has to respect, including yours. See, in the context of the Trinity, I don't assume that the term being means anything in particular. Unlike Dr. White, I realize that behind the enforced Orthodox language, there have always survived different theologies, each of which calls itself the doctrine of the Trinity. So when I lose patience is when people just go around gassing about the doctrine of the Trinity, the historic doctrine of the Trinity, and so on, and they never actually clarify which sort of view they think is true. But again, it's all part of this narrative. If it's always been obvious that God's a Trinity just simply by reading the Bible, then it must be pretty obvious what's meant by there being one being or one usia in God. And so there must just be one understanding, never mind what it is, there just has to be one, okay? And in practice, they think that that one correct meaning is just whatever they think. Now, Dr. White's views on this are none too clear. See his book on the Trinity if you want to try to figure out what he thinks the one usia is. But when I'm dialoguing with a Trinitarian on the topic of the Trinity, what I say is basically, okay, tell me what you think the doctrine of the Trinity is. Let's talk about that. What do you mean by being, my friend? They might mean a universal property. They might mean an individual property. They might mean a complex thing made of parts. They might mean just a god. They might mean something analogous to material stuff, kind of something that's matter-like. And then we can proceed from there. 
Now, when I'm applying the indiscernibility of identicals, I'm just using being as a synonym for thing in just the broadest sense, like thing that can be referred to, thing that can be talked about. So yeah, he's just latching on to, you know, a favorite term of Trinitarians and saying, aha, this fool, he says being can't be shared. No, look, uh, can being be shared? Well, on the face of it, being can be shared if being is a universal property, if divinity is understood on the model of humanity, where humanity is universal, like this universal humanity is in you and it's in me and it's in Barack Obama and it's in Donald Trump. If there are such things as universals, and so there is such a thing as this universal property, humanity, then divinity could be like that. And look, then uh, it would be defined as something that was shareable. Now you'd still have to ask some more questions about that. If there's something further about divinity, which renders it such that it can't be shared, but just by being a universal, then look, it looks like it's going to be shareable. And this is how some Trinitarians think. Um, This goes back to, in my view, just slightly before there was a doctrine of a triune God. Basil of Caesarea, the church father, in the late 300s, he says that what's common to the persons is, you know, basically a universal divinity. Now, not all philosophers believe in universals. Some think that universals are real properties. Some think that really they're just concepts. Uh, But yeah, some people think that it's a universal, uh, particularly three self-Trinitarians like uh, William Hasker and Richard Swinburne. That's one thing that could be meant. Could the divine nature be shared if it's analogous to stuff? Well, arguably so. There are a few philosophers who have argued that this is how the shared divine nature is to be understood. And um, just like two different physical objects can simultaneously be composed of the same batch of matter. So in this case, why couldn't three different divine entities be composed by the same divine stuff or quasi stuff? That's a view that's out there. It's called Constitution Trinitarianism. If you're curious about that, I've got a whole published paper on that. I'll put a link to it in the blog post for this episode. Now, sometimes Trinitarians mean that the shared nature is an individual property. So it's like James White's humanity or Dale Tuggy's humanity. This theory of properties just really defines them to be unshareable because they're individual properties. So yeah, if that's what you mean by the being of the three persons, it looks like it implies that they just are one another. So you're just dealing with three names for the same thing. It looks like it implies that they should collapse into numerically one thing and so not be three things. Now, Dr. White is right here that the tradition wants to say there are three somethings here, namely three persons. In my book, What is the Trinity? I've got a chapter where I grind through, I think it's nine different things you might mean by saying that the Father and Son are homoousios, that is one essence, one one being, as it's sometimes put. And I discuss the many things that might be meant and the problems and advantages of those different interpretations. So to say that I ignore the tradition is just, I'm so patient that I go through every possible interpretation of what being might mean in Trinitarian traditions. And I consider the different interpretations on their merits. And then at the end of the chapter, I ask, okay, what did they mean, the 381 Council, when they really mandated this same Usia language? I've got another chapter where I go through the different things that might be meant by the term person. 
Yeah, Dr. White just doesn't have time for these kind of discussions. So I'm sure he hasn't read my book. And the reason is, again, his mind is held captive by this narrative that, hey, this is just really obvious and that what changed is just the language. And this has always been held central to mainstream Christianity, both Trinity and Incarnation. It's just not true, but I'm not going to get into that now. Because his mind is locked into that box, he does not want to hear. He refuses to acknowledge that there is no one doctrine of the Trinity, that behind the mandated language about the Trinity, there are several competing interpretations, and they can't all be true. Now, that's a serious charge. How dare I say that such a fine, upstanding scholar as Dr. James White is just ignoring obviously relevant material? Well, I know it's a serious charge, and I don't enjoy making it. I wish he would just go and learn this stuff. So here's what you can do. You can Google Trinity Stanford, and you can find my article in the Stanford Cyclopedia of Philosophy. And I talk about these different competing Trinity theories that have been much discussed by major Christian intellectuals, people like Peter Van Inwagen, Richard Swinburne, William Hasker, Michael Ray, Brian Leftow, many others. Just glance through the table of contents there. Who are the scholars? What are the general types of positions? How do they differ and how they interpret terms like being and person and so on? And if you're a James White listener, if you're a fan of his work, ask yourself, okay, how much of this material have I ever heard from anything by James White, either on his program, in his book, in his debates? And... As far as I can tell, the answer is basically nothing, although I seem to recall him dumping on uh, William Lane Craig's own unique uh, Trinity theory at some point, but I forget where that is exactly. It was some years ago. My memory is he didn't take it seriously, and he didn't really do the work necessary to understand it and engage with it. Okay, but you can't take uh, the testimony of Tuggy in favor of Tuggy, right? If I testify in favor of myself, what good is that, Jesus says. Okay, fine. Assume that I have this crazy skewed view. Go look for the uh, Trinity entry in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy by Harriet Baber, or H.E. Baber. And um, she's a very interesting person who has a very kind of logician's take on the whole thing. She doesn't use the same labels that I use to sort the views. But yeah, she's talking about the same views, what other people call Latin Trinitarianism versus Greek Trinitarianism and so on what I call one self and three self views. Okay, how much of that material have you ever heard about in anything produced by James White? One more testimony. Look up the Routledge Encyclopedia of Philosophy entry on the Trinity by Daniel Howard Snyder, an excellent philosopher, by the way. And you can find this just by Googling Daniel Howard Snyder, Trinity Routledge. He's got a version posted on his personal website. And just give that a quick read. Again, he's discussing the same views. These views have been really a subject of discussion since about, it's hard to pinpoint an exact year, but I would say a lot of the discussion got going in the um, early 90s and a little bit before, but especially due to the work of Richard Swinburne and people reacting against that in the 90s and in the 2000s. So yeah, this stuff has been out there for a while. It's well known among people who care to read philosophical theology or analytic theology. And he just doesn't care to address it. And the reason is it goes against his narrative that there is some one doctrine of the Trinity that's always been held. 
what more informed people have realized is there isn't one view to defend here. We need to interpret this language first and then see, okay, can we get a view that's seemingly coherent and that fits well with the Bible and that fits well with historical theology? I mean, we need to do some work here to actually interpret the Orthodox language before we start defending it. That's the approach of analytic theologians. And I agree with the general approach. It's a serious, truth-seeking approach. What happened in my case is examining these many theories and their many difficulties, which are different from one another. This drove me back to the Bible, and then I realized that the Bible actually doesn't properly motivate any such theory. That was quite a shock, but that's another podcast. So anyway, yeah, this term being... I'm not presupposing it means anything. I'm aware that it can mean a bunch of things. The question is, what do you say it means? And depending on what you say it means, it might be a thing that in principle arguably could be shared by different persons, by different things, or not. Okay, so let's hear the rest of Dr. White's... Right. There's uh, so many of his arguments insightful that critique. are based upon approaching the Son as the incarnate one, not even recognizing the plainly biblical teaching, that there is a difference temporally and historically between the Logos who becomes flesh and the Logos prior to entrance into flesh. It's extremely frustrating. Hmm. Yeah, like, I don't know. There's supposed to be a difference between the Logos and then the two-natured Christ. Hmm. It's a little bit mysterious how he could think I'm ignoring that or not dealing with it somehow. Perhaps he should watch my lecture clarifying Catholic Christologies. Okay, but here we're getting who, to the fun we part. We need to find someone who can make these and put them on a trophy stand with a little Bic lighter up front. He's you know? holding up you, a you know what straw I mean? with a little plaque on it that says or "Idol" or something. Uh, straw Man Award given to, and then we could have it put on there, and we could send these to people like Dale Tuggy. <laughs> no, we, no, someone could do this. Trust me. Uh, someone, someone, so, uh, well, oh, we man. would have to mass produce them. That's, that would I, that's, me so that, bad. that's the point you're making. Yes. We would not be able to keep up with the demand, but uh, he would have to be given uh, <laughs> numerous. He would have to have gotten 10 of them just for this one debate hmm. because it's just our very definition I'm so says dumb. it was the son who became incarnate, not the father. Oh, there's a difference. No Trinity. That's the kind of argumentation. If Dr. Tuggy actually wants his Not arguments to be at all compelling to Orthodox biblical Trinitarians, he hasn't even tried to step up to that level. Really hasn't. The rest of you know, some he gets into all this philosophical quackery uh, at, at, at other points uh, that, that completely begs the issue as well. But that kind of, if there's just one simultaneous, then there are two beings. That was extremely frustrating to listen to, and he really does think that he provides compelling exegesis when he doesn't even begin the process of providing compelling exegesis. It's sort of, uh, it makes sense, given his background and his training, it's not, it's not in exegesis. He's not an exegete by any stretch of the imagination, but he believes that he is and presents himself in that way. So the, the Unitarians, I, I guess Buzzard's group was involved with this and helping to fund it and all the rest of this stuff, and they all scratch each other's backs as far as that goes. Uh, but man, they just do not have uh, almost anything there at all to, to go with. They just simply have to create a straw man 
ask certain questions and just ignore the weight of the biblical evidence, the identification of Jesus as Yahweh, the distinction between the Father and the Son. you got to deal with that stuff. You can't just ignore it. You can't just take your philosophical categories and make that your foundation. And that's exactly what, um, what uh, was going on in that very frustrating uh, thing to, uh, to listen to. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, look, this is brutally uninformed. Dr. White should read my book called What is the Trinity, which was written precisely to engage evangelical Trinitarians about the Trinity, about what the different theories are, about historically where this came from, how it arose, and how you relate all of this to interpreting Scripture. How do you actually get the Trinity out of Scripture? And uh, for him to just accuse me of a total lack of engagement is just ignorant. Uh, The accusation of uh, philosophical quackery, yeah, I mean, look, um, when you don't understand certain points that are being made or certain arguments and you're not patient enough to actually work through it and figure out how you disagree with it, if you do disagree with it, then this is just like a shortcut. You just result to insults. Oh, it must just be a bunch of bull. It must just be uh, tomfoolery. It's just quackery. This guy doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, look, why would all these peer-reviewed professional journals publish the work of a total quack who has no idea how to argue Um, has no meaningful engagement with scripture or tradition, but just ignores all the most important points. That makes no sense. It's conspiracy theory level thinking. But again, he's got his mind in that box. It's that narrative that's all controlling. My work is not consistent with that narrative because I know the narrative is false. And there's historical reasons for that, which I won't get into now, but there's a large body of compelling historical evidence there that shows me that it's false that what developed was just the terminology or the precision of concepts. It shows me it's false that the Trinity and Incarnation, as understood in the 300s and 400s, that those were always considered essential and central to Christianity. They weren't. You don't see them in early Christianity. They just don't occur. They're not even mentioned. Nor is it correct that the Trinity and Incarnation, as understood by the councils of 381 and 451, it's not true that those are easily deducible from the Bible. Otherwise, you would have seen those views held all along. But what you see are leading champions of mainstream Christianity, people like Justin, like Origen, and Tertullian, who don't hold those views. They hold theologies and Christologies incompatible with those views, demonstrably so. When your mind is captive to a false narrative, you just can't hear certain information, and you just don't have the patience to work through serious material on this topic. And it's not just mine that he's ignoring. Hey, well, this is a really serious lack if he thinks that he can speak to this topic in this day to educated people. I do much appreciate the thought, Dr. White. Uh, But I'm afraid I just can't accept this wonderful award for attacking straw men. See, the thing is, I attack views that people actually do hold. It's just that there are many views here in the field, and not all of them are yours. Trinity theories and incarnation theories are many, and what would beg the question against one does not beg the question against another. In any case, I'm just not begging any questions at all when it comes to the terms being and person. 
nor am I hiding such distinctions. In fact, I've done quite a lot to explain and explore and evaluate the usefulness of such a distinction when it comes to Trinity theories. So, thanks, but no thanks. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I have an award to present to Dr. James White, and I discuss some communication problems in my recent debate with Chris Date. Dr. James White is a very accomplished man. His book, entitled The Forgotten Trinity, was published in 1998. And since that time, there has come out an avalanche of relevant scholarship in two different areas. One area, as I've explained, is in analytic theology, wherein Trinitarians try to precisely define their terms and try to show that they do have a self-consistent theology, which indeed fits with tradition and with scripture. Dr. James White has made himself willfully blind to this entire realm of literature. He wants nothing to do with it. And I think the reason is that it would raise too many hard questions for his own Trinity theory. Another whole realm of scholarship, which has accelerated in the last 25 or 30 years, has to do with understanding early Christian theology properly, not according to just a very partisan Athanasian narrative, but understanding, for instance, 4th century mainstream Christians that history has learned to call Arians, understanding them properly, understanding people like Tertullian and Origen and Justin Martyr. There's a realm of scholarship that shows that people like Justin, Tertullian, and Origen are not at all Trinitarians. They don't talk about a triune God. Their logos is not equally divine with the one true God, which is the Father. They don't think that the one true God is the Trinity. It seems to me that Dr. White has a very superficial engagement with the early history of Christian theologies. And it seems to me that he's ignoring a lot of relevant literature, which shows the great theological and Christological differences between these early figures and what's considered orthodox since the 4th and 5th centuries. So in view of these remarkable achievements over the past two decades plus, I would like to present Dr. White with the Stevie Wonder Trophy for Willful Blindness to Relevant Scholarship. Now, this is an online-only award. There won't be any trophy arriving in the mail, but uh, there is a picture of the trophy in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. So congratulations, Dr. White, on two decades of really remarkable achievements in this area of willful blindness to relevant scholarship. So now I want to talk briefly about some similar misunderstandings on the part of Chris Date. Uh, I enjoyed debating Chris Date recently. I liked him more afterwards than I did before. I hadn't met him before, but I was familiar with his work, and I considered him to be humble and serious-minded and concerned with truth. 
uh, we had a few friendly conversations uh, afterwards the next day. But uh, he ran into some similar problems as James White, uh, understanding where I'm coming from and what I'm saying, what I'm not saying about these key terms. This is a portion of his rebuttal to my opening statement in the debate. So this is in the official video at about an hour and 29 minutes. Finally, I want to talk about the logical objections that Dr. Tuggy has to, to my position. He asks me whether this God, which is Jesus, is the same God as the God, the Father, or is he a different God? The answer, the same God. As I said in my opening presentation, there exists only one divine being and three divine persons, each of whose being is the one divine being. You see, the Father and Son both subsist in the only divine being, so they are equally the one true God. Then he says, if I say that the Father and the Son are the same God, as I've just done, uh, how is this compatible with the Father and the Son being different from one another? Answer, they differ in person, not in being. They interpersonally relate to one another differently, but they each subsist in the only divine being. Now, when it comes to the law of non-contradiction, Dr. Tuggy argues that being the same God requires being numerically the same being, but that requires that they never differ in any way. And we'll come to the differences in particular in a moment. If they ever have differed in any way, that proves that they are not the same being. But this is why I observed in my opening that Dr. Tuggy just assumes that a person's being can't be shared by other persons or selves, and that a person just is some sort of being. They're practically synonymous, or at the very least, a person is a kind of being. I reject those assumptions, and can therefore affirm that the Father and Son are indeed numerically the same being, but they differ as persons. Okay, so there are a couple of interesting communication problems here, one on his part and one on my part. Um, the one on his part is, I heard what he said about subsisting in one being in his opening statement. We exchanged opening statements a week before the debate, so that's why we were able to prepare hard-hitting rebuttals. And uh, I could not figure out what he meant by one being, one shared being. Uh, now, after having a friendly conversation with him the day after the debate, I think what he thinks is that the being is an individual property. Although at one point in the debate, he says that it's the one God, which I don't think you can say both of those things. If it's an individual property, then it's just defined as not shareable. So I don't know that this makes sense. Okay, but he's trying to interpret the orthodox language. And you have to say three persons with the same being or one being or one essence. He throws in this language of subsistence. I don't think that that's very helpful. If you're going to use a term like that, I think you need to define what it is. You seem to have in mind like a dependence relation, like the persons of the Trinity exist as persons and as divine persons because of this other thing that they subsist in. So there's a distinction between the being and the persons and the, being, the persons depend on the being for being what they are, something like that. Anyway, I didn't really comment on this in my rebuttal or in my closing statement because I really just couldn't parse what Trinity theory this was supposed to be. The view seems to have this ambiguity that by divine being, he seems to mean a property, like a property of divinity, whether it's universal or individual is another question. I think he thinks it's individual, but then he'll also use divine being to mean like God, a God. It's the one God. And, you know, the one God I don't think is a property. Now, we could get into all the agonies of traditional speculation about divine simplicity here, but I would recommend reading the article on that by my friend, uh, Dr. William Valicella, which is in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. That's a whole other can of worms. 
Now, to his credit, he engages my argument where I offer him a dilemma. Are you going to say the Father and Son are the same God or that they're different gods, given that each one is a God because each one, in your view, is divine? And of course, if you say there are different gods, you've now got two gods. So he embraces the horn of the dilemma that they're the same God. The problem with that is that there's an obvious analysis of what it is for things to be the same something. And this is widely agreed to by philosophers. As always, there are a few who disagree, but it says that to be the same F, thing of a certain sort, uh, requires that the first thing is an F and also the second thing is an F and that the first thing really just is the second thing. So really we're dealing with one and the same thing described two ways. So for instance, Saul and Paul are the same man. There are three things that are required for that to be true. Saul has to be a man. That's true. Paul has to be a man. That's true. And it has to be the one just is the other. Paul just is Saul. Saul just is Paul. They're numerically the same. Right. That's what it is for Saul and Paul to be the same man. Those three things have to be true. If you say the Father and the Son are the same God, that's to say that the Father is a God and that the Son is a God and that the Father just is the Son. So it collapses the Father and Son into numerically one entity. Remember, numerical identity is a relation that a thing can only bear to itself. It's necessarily reflexive. Whenever you have a relation of numerical identity, you're not dealing with many things. You're dealing with one and the same thing. What's wrong with that? Why can't I say the Father just is the Son? Well, because they differ from one another. Different things are true of them. Uh, you can see them simultaneously differing in Scripture. So it's just a mistake. You can't say that and have coherent views. That's why there's a really difficult problem if you say they're the same God, because then you have to say that they're same in every way. They don't differ in any respect at any time. Mr. Date's answer is, hey, they differ in person, not in being. Well, this is kind of missing the force of the objection. That's just going back to the kind of Trinitarian script and just, well, this is what you're supposed to say. They differ in this way, but not that way. But if they differ in any way, they're not the same thing. Never mind if they're, quote, same being. That's your term. It's your theory. You can define same being how you want, and then we can talk about that once there's a clear view on the table. But my point is, by self-evident truth, which is the difference of discernibles, and by this obvious and compelling analysis of what it means to say that two things are the same something, just from those two things, it follows that you have collapsed the father and son, you've identified them, and then they can't differ in any way, which is something a Christian and something which even a Trinitarian cannot say. So just to go back to saying they subsist in the only divine being, that's nice, but that really doesn't deal with the objection stated. So I don't think Mr. Date really gets the full force of this objection. Conceivably, there is another way out for the Trinitarian. Instead of saying that they're the same God or that they're two different gods, they can just deny that either one is a God. And this is what Dr. William Lane Craig does. He says, look, the one God's a Trinity, right? Right. And is the Father the Trinity? No, of course not. So the Father is the one God. The Son and the Father are not gods. Okay, well, then they don't have divinity in the sense where that's just having what's essential to being a God. They don't have that kind of divinity then. So that's the price he pays for making that move. But anyway, he's a Trinitarian. He would answer this quite differently. Other Trinitarians, like Richard Swinburne, I mean, they basically admit that they're two gods, but then say that they're so unified in their action that they can be thought of as if they're one. Okay, but again, the problem with 
Mr. Dates seizing the horn that they're the same God is that implies that they're numerically the same. And that implies that they can't ever differ in any way. But of course, in the New Testament, they do differ. So at, at this point, Mr. Date, I mean, he kind of falls back on a common assumption, I guess, about Unitarian Christians that they just, you know, are constantly going around assuming uh, they just can't see any other point of view. And so they can only kind of read scriptures with their Unitarian goggles welded to their faces. Uh, I mean, look, that's, I think, not a fair charge, especially in the case of someone like me who really pulled out all the stops to try to remain a Trinitarian when I was thinking through these different positions and trying to square them with the Bible and with reason. But the more important point maybe is that it's just an ad hominem accusation. You're just saying, hey, well, these guys are closed-minded. Maybe they are, but we're not talking about the virtues of these guys. We're talking about, you know, the best way to understand the New Testament, basically. And it's really just not to the point to complain that these guys supposedly can only uh, see things their way. When the Trinity's podcast returns... Does Mr. Date's position require what philosophers call relative identity? And there's another problem here. Um, he says something different at the end of that. Let me play that last part of his statement for you again, because I think it raises yet another problem for his own Trinity theory. Now, for a lot of the debate, it seemed to me that when he said the Father and the Son are divine, what he was basically doing was describing each of them. So they're both equally divine in that what underlies them is this thing he calls the divine nature or the divine being. Okay, but to say that the Father and Son are divine where that's descriptive is quite different than to say that each one is numerically identical to divine being. That's not just describing, it's going beyond to assert a claim of numerical identity. So this is what he says. I reject those assumptions and can therefore affirm that the Father and Son are indeed numerically the same being, but they differ as persons. Right, so his idea is that the Father and the Son are different persons, but the same being. That's a claim of relative identity. I don't think Mr. Date realizes here that to say that, you need what philosophers and logicians call relative identity theory. Uh, most philosophers think that no X and Y can be the same one sort of thing, but be a different other sort of thing. And it's because of that analysis I just mentioned. So, for instance, Saul and Paul couldn't be the same apostle, but different men. And the reason is that if, you're, if they're the same apostle, then Saul's an apostle and Paul's an apostle. And also Saul just is Paul. That implies that Saul and Paul are identical. Right. And so if they're identical, there can't be a difference between them, uh, such as that this is one man and this is another man. So relative identity comes along and in one form it says, hey, there is no relation of identity. There's just relative identity. 
identity is always relative to what logicians call a sortal, a term that you know sorts things into different kinds. This is too much to go into in this podcast. I explained in my Trinity entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy why this is widely rejected, these doctrines of relative identity. In the debate where I couldn't go through all of the many technical agonies of relative identity theory, I just tried to head off this move by pointing out that in the New Testament, the Father is the God of the Son, and that just conceptually, no God can be the God over himself. So if one God's God over another, those have to be two gods. They can't be the same God. Okay, but here's the other communication problem, and this is my problem, and I'll own up to it. It's this term, person. I do think that usually when we use the term person, we're talking about beings, like individual things. Not a mode of a being, not a personality, not a way a thing is, not an event that involves a thing, but just it's a type of thing. It's a thinking thing. Usually when we talk about persons, we mean human persons. And those are things. They're not just, again, ways a thing is or something less than a thing. Now, in the context of arguing about Trinity theories, I don't say, well, I'll tell you, friend, what person means. And here's what it means. It means a being. No, my approach is, hey, look, it's your theory. There are different Trinity theories. When you say that there are three persons sharing one divine essence or being, what do you mean by persons? And some will say that, well, you know, person's a misleading term. It tends to communicate in modern times the idea of a being like a thinker, but we don't think that. We think that in ancient times it could refer to, you know, an actor's mask, a role that one plays, a personality or an aspect of a being, something like that. Look, it's your theory. You just tell us what you mean by persons and then we'll go with it from there. So yes, if your persons are beings in the sense of things, like what Aristotle calls first or primary substances, then you've got three entities, three realities in the theory. If persons are just, you know, like ways a thing is or ways a thing lives or something, then that's compatible with just saying there's really one thing there. Now, generally, my strategy is to avoid the term person and to just use the term self. Uh, I do claim that everybody in the human race has this concept. You find it in all languages and cultures. It's basically the concept or the idea of an intelligent being with which one could in principle communicate and engage in interpersonal relationships with. Let's just call that a self and avoid this term person. So I do that sometimes. But when I'm talking to different Trinitarians, if they use the term person to mean a self, like an intelligent individual entity, I'll be a chum and I'll use the term person to mean self as well. I don't care to really argue about words. What matters is the ideas the words express. So yeah, in some context, I will actually write person slash self. Those both communicate the same idea in a common usage. But yeah, if the Trinitarian has some special meaning for person, you know, more power to you. Tell us what that is, and then we can go for there in talking about whether this theory makes sense and whether it fits scripture and even Christian experience. So yeah, I don't have a problem of just not knowing what Trinitarians mean. I know too much. I know they mean different things. I don't deliberately ignore distinctions that they want to make. 
I let them make the distinctions. I let them use their technical terms how they want. But yeah, my problems that I'm offering him regarding the collapse of the father and son into numerically one thing, one entity, those problems don't depend on me presupposing anything about the term being or the term person in the context of Trinity theories. So there's a little bit of misunderstanding there about where I'm coming from. Before Ian, I want to go back to Dr. White and just draw a general lesson here. After his you know, less than 10 minute brush off of my date debate in which he basically says I'm a liar who cynically just uh, ignores distinctions that he knows Trinitarians are making. He moves on to culture war topics. And along the way, he says something that's really kind of ironic in this context. So let me play that for you. There's an article running around. And again, it just plays on our lack of knowledge of history about the term homosexual and when it developed and all the rest of that stuff, um, these articles play on the fact that even Christians today are simply not taught how to think logically and critically. That's where the problem lies, and we must develop those, uh, those capacities and uh, so on and so forth. Now, here's something that Dr. White and I agree on, but here's something maybe he doesn't realize. Logic is a branch of philosophy. Critical thinking courses in modern universities are taught by philosophers. They're offered in philosophy departments. If you're going to address culture war, ethical issues, and policy issues, you're going to need to be a clear thinker and a clear reasoner, and someone who can put together intelligible arguments. Who do you learn this best from? Analytic philosophers. This is a tremendous problem with seminary education now. They teach people Greek and give them some tools of exegesis. They teach them theology, or mm, at least a very partisan take on historical theology. What they generally don't teach is critical thinking. They generally, as far as I understand, don't require any engagement with recent analytic philosophy. Well, they should. This is the biggest golden age of philosophy in the history of the human race. Bigger than that in ancient Greece, bigger than that in early modern times with people like Descartes and Hume and Kant. There's just a ton of really good philosophy being done. And you can learn a ton from philosophers about critical thinking, offering careful arguments, how to evaluate competing theories, how to carefully analyze and understand claims and people's positions on issues before you go around trying to refute them. Dr. White has this deficiency in his background, and so therefore he finds this stuff hard to follow. And he concludes a little bit arrogantly, I think, therefore it's all garbledy gook and sophistry. It's not. Look, read some of those papers that are discussed in those encyclopedia articles on Trinity theories, and you'll see it's all deadly serious, and it's all very carefully reasoned. It's all very precise. And if you want to learn precise thinking about Trinity and Incarnation, you can do no better than reading these people. Take Incarnation. If you want to actually have developed views about things like Incarnation, you should read the best philosophical material you can find on that. That would principally be two books, Tom Morris's older book, The Logic of God Incarnate, where he offers a very sophisticated sort of defense and proposes a two minds theory. 
And then even better than that is Dr. Timothy Paul's recent book. He's a Roman Catholic um, analytic theologian and philosopher. I disagree with what he thinks about incarnation, but it's a brilliant book. It illuminates a lot of the history of this theorizing, what they actually thought in the 5th century when they were at this council in 451. And you're going to have to have some patience and do some real work. But you know, it really, really pays off. Good analytic philosophy is intelligible. It doesn't make issues more obscure. It makes them more clear. The lesson you should take from this is you should definitely take some college courses in analytic philosophy, if not analytic theology, then at least philosophy of religion. And you will learn how to understand especially deductive arguments, but also other kinds of arguments. It will really help you to be able to engage with this serious material. And if you're going to be an apologist who has something to say on, quote, the Trinity, you should know these different theories. And if you're going to defend, quote, the incarnation, you should know something about the different kinds of incarnation theories and the different difficulties they face and the different historical proponents they've had. The old narrative has to go. It's not going to be easy to get rid of it. The only thing that can get rid of it is a fully constructed narrative that better fits the facts. And I don't think anybody's fully come up with that yet. That's what needs to happen. The chains have to be removed from people's minds. They have to be able to think outside of this all-controlling narrative. If we can't even admit that there are different incarnation theories in play among people who think they are defending the incarnation, if we can't admit that there are different Trinity theories in play, theories proposed by people who think they are defending the Trinity, then we need to get better informed because this is where the state of knowledge is at these days. Gassing about the Trinity and the Incarnation and pounding the table that they're just obviously taught in Scripture, that just won't do anymore. We've got to get beyond that. It's not easy, but this is what you do when the truth of the matter is what you're interested in and not just defending my people versus these outsiders. So let's be serious about this. Let's treat this like people who are actually interested in the truth of the matter. This week's thinking music has been the track Long Live Blind Joe by Robero or Robero. Not sure which it is. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement.
Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.